So what do you think of when you hear the word competition? What crosses your mind when it comes to competition? 130 different countries participated in the competition. There were hundreds of Olympic hopefuls, but only six walked away with the gold. Now that sounds like a tagline from Rio and maybe the gymnastics or swimming or track and field teams of the United States. But actually, that is a tagline from a few weeks ago in Hong Kong. What in the world was happening a few weeks ago in Hong Kong? And who is it in Hong Kong that won gold? And what did they win gold in? Well, the Olympians that won the gold was Team USA. And they won the gold in math. That's right. The 57th Annual International Mathematical Olympiad was held in Hong Kong a few weeks ago. Now, if you're not a mathlete, that may mean absolutely nothing to you. But the truth of the matter is, is our media has been telling us for the last 10 years or more that in our country, we are severely lagging and lacking in the area of arithmetic. So for these high school students to go halfway across the globe to win a gold medal because they've out-calculated and out-solved the brightest math minds in the world, that's kind of a big deal. And it's a cool thing. And it's an honor for our country. The United States won in 1994, and then they went 21 years without winning again. And then last year they won, and this year they won. So back-to-back, so we wish them the best for the three-peat next year and hope they do well. Now, I'm guessing that somewhere in the course of the International Mathematical Olympiad, somebody had to do a little bit of multiplication. By definition, the word multiply means this, increase or cause to increase greatly in number or quantity. Generally speaking, every single person in this room and every single person that can hear my voice likes for things to multiply. We like for things to increase. A student would love for their teacher to increase extra credit for texting in class or playing Pokemon Go or maybe just showing up. You know, They'd love extra credit to increase in those areas. Parents would love for their kids to multiply their hours in doing chores around the house or at the very least kind of doing their homework. If you're in sales, you would love for your sales to multiply this quarter. See, we, we like the idea of things increasing. We, we want things to increase. There's a lot of areas of our life that we would like to see multiplication happen. And the same should be true for the church. The church should be a place that that loves multiplication. The church should be a place that loves increase. We should desire an increase in, in seeing true disciples come to follow Jesus, both here and around the world. We should desire to, to see true prayer coming from the lives of professing Christians. We should desire true repentance to come from the lives of of professing Christians. We should desire true witnessing. We should desire true, cheerful, financial giving to the work of the gospel. We should desire true starting of new churches all over the world. 
So how does all of that happen? Well, strategically, it is the work of the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God works in unique ways. God has created paths for the Spirit to work. Not crazy paths, but simple, uncluttered, ordinary paths for how God does extraordinary things. What kind of paths are we talking about? Well, we're going to look at one this morning. Listen to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 44. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. The first church was together, and they had all things in common. What that means is, is that they had services every single night in the sanctuary. They had prayer meetings, and, and they had uh, preaching services every single night. They had singing concerts every single night. And all of the men wore matching leisure suits when they came to these services. And all the ladies wore matching calico dresses. And all the youth and the kids, they had matching uniforms with khaki shorts and, and navy shirts. And at these meetings, everybody liked the same kind of music. And everybody used the same version of the Bible. And at these meetings, everybody liked the same font in the bulletin. At these meetings, everyone had the same color skin. And they all went to the same high school. And they all liked the the same local restaurant. And they all cheer for the same college team. And they all make the same amount of money. No, 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 (laughs) no. In fact, the first church was the exact opposite of everything that I just said. In fact, the first church looked more like a multicultural international refugee camp than it did the average Southern Baptist church today, or really any denominational church today. And that's a good thing, because if it had not looked like an international refugee camp, then you probably would not be a Christian. You see, the the makeup of how different it was, the fact that there were so many people from so many places that heard the gospel and got saved and then took it away with them is the only reason that the gospel made it to South Carolina. Philosophically speaking, we could say that the gospel would have stayed in the Middle East had the church not been full of different people. So when Dr. Luke is writing here and he goes, yeah, they had everything in common, he doesn't mean that they did everything together all the time and he doesn't mean that they all liked the exact same things. Notice that one word that he says there, right there in verse 44. And those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were believing in Jesus. They were trusting in Jesus. They were relying on Jesus. They were clinging to Jesus. These people, they were doing life together. They chose to look beyond the color of their skin, to look beyond their bank accounts, to look beyond which side of the tracks they grew up on to look beyond their education, to look beyond their favorite music, to look beyond their favorite team, to look beyond anything that would distract them from the one thing they had in common. You see, they chose to not define their lives based on material things, our personal preferences, our physical attributes. 
They continued to work hard to be stunned and amazed that the one thing they all had in common was this. Jesus had saved them. What would happen in our lives today if we thought the way the first church did? That our salvation in Jesus became the defining part of who we were and how we think. In other words, what happened in the early church is Jesus became their greatest possession. Would someone at your funeral say, you know what? His greatest possession was Jesus. Would they say, you know what? She would rather have Jesus than anything else. Or would the defining message that came from your funeral be just about your family or about your career or about your favorite car? or your favorite team, or your donations that you gave to charity. Those things are all good. But would those things be spoken of at your funeral as things that you used for the glory of God and for His kingdom? Or would the only reflection of the glory of God and His kingdom at your funeral be the fact that that everybody sings, Precious Lord, take my hand in amazing grace? I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but... But just stay with me because I cannot compel us enough to consider that at any moment, accidents happen. At any moment, disease pops up. At any moment, hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes, even terrorism, or just the end of old age, those things happen. And in the moment right before those things happen, what your greatest possession is really matters. And because I have a high view of God's kingship, a high view of God's sovereignty, I don't say that to scare you this morning. I say it as a plea so that you will know and that I could announce that you can search the entire world and look over and over and over and you will never find rescue like the rescue of Jesus. You'll never find forgiveness like the forgiveness of Jesus. You'll never find freedom like the freedom of Jesus. You'll never find peace like the peace of Jesus, or joy like the joy of Jesus, or hope like the hope of Jesus. You'll never find satisfaction like the satisfaction in Jesus. You'll never find love like the love that you can only find in Jesus. The Gaithers put it this way in their song, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Please understand that we are not offering you a higher power. We are not offering you a religion. We are not offering you a system of of moral attributes. We're not offering you a cult of personality. We're not offering you a divine denomination. We're not offering you family values. We're not offering you a political party. We're not offering you spiritual babysitting for your kids. We're not offering you a social outlet for your teens. We're not offering you a country club membership. We're not offering you a coffee house experience. We're not even offering you a church. We are offering you one person, and his name is Jesus. That is what we give. That is what we offer. There is nothing else 
to offer. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may, to Syria or to Charleston, to Vancouver, to Cambodia, to Indonesia, to India. You go anywhere. And Spurgeon says, and go wherever we may, we have something solid and tangible to preach. And he says this. If you had asked the 12 apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would not have needed to go round about with a long reply, but they would have pointed to the Master and they would have said, we believe Him. We believe Him. You see, that was the only mission statement of the first church. We believe Him. We believe Jesus. We have, we have Jesus in common. We're, we're together in Jesus. And that should be the same eager and enthusiastic mission statement of Holland Avenue Baptist Church. And it should be the same eager and enthusiastic mission statement of any church that claims to follow Jesus. And what should that mission statement lead us to do? What should we do with our faith in Jesus? Well, we should keep our faith at the right times, we should defend our faith, give, give argument and proof and, and evidence for why we follow Jesus. We should love our faith, and we should spread our faith. Spurgeon goes on and says this, To spread the faith, then, is to spread the knowledge of Christ crucified. It is, in fact, to bring men through the agency of God's Spirit to feel their need of Christ to seek Christ, to believe in Christ, to love Christ, and then to live for Christ. See, we, we want you to feel your need for Christ. If you are not a Christian today, we want you to know you need Christ. And if you are a Christian today, we want you to know you need Christ. I did not wake up this morning going, hey, I'm a pastor, I went to seminary, got a few pages of stuff to say, I think I got it covered. I woke up desperate this morning. Desperate for Jesus. I need him to function. I need him to exist. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. So spreading our faith is helping people see that they need Jesus. So how did the first church do that? How did they spread their faith? How, how were they together? And, and how were they in this thing where they had all things in common? Well, look at verse 45. And they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Ooh, didn't see that coming. First church was a bunch of socialist communists. What in the world? Man, oh man. No, that's not what's happening here. 22 years ago, I was driving from Simpsonville, South Carolina to North Little Rock, Arkansas. Two of the nicest people on the planet, Mickey and Stephanie Bowles, had asked me to sing in their wedding. And the big wedding weekend was over, and I was making my way back to Arkansas. I was getting a little tired. I was a little worn out. It was late at night, and I decided that I'd pull over, get a hotel room, and catch a little shut-eye. 
I was about an hour this side of Nashville. And I went off an exit that had a lot of hotels, and every single hotel I went into was packed. I mean full. But it wasn't until I got to the third hotel that the person at the desk said, oh yeah, you know what, Fan Fest is this week in Nashville, this huge annual country music festival. Yeah, you aren't going to find a room anywhere around here. <laughs> in fact, you won't find anywhere all the way down the road. You're going to have to go back. And I went back. I had to drive back about 20 minutes before I finally found a room at a hotel. And then in the middle of the night at the hotel that I stayed at, I woke up probably 3 o'clock in the morning with a cockroach on my forehead. <laughs> but that's a story for a never time that I won't share. Imagine, though, something different happened in this scene. Imagine that I get to talking to the nice guy at the third hotel, and we find out that we're both believers in Jesus. And he says to me, hey, you know what? My house is just around the corner from here. I've got a bunch of people staying from the festival with me. You know what? Why don't you just bunk on the sofa tonight, and then you can be on your way in the morning. Now, that sounds a little bit strange in this day and age, right? I mean, we live in a world of, of danger and, and predators and, and people of questionable character. So the concept of just, hey, letting some strange guy you meet in a hotel lobby crash on your sofa sounds a little bit weird. But if you'll think about it, about 60 years ago, maybe a little more, hitchhiking was all over our country. <laughs> I mean, I know my uncle and I think my mom were hitchhiking back and forth from Clemson to to Elliot and, and Furman to Elliot, and I mean, and some of y'all, I mean, I've heard some of y'all tell stories about, you know, catching a ride uh, with, with the, old, the old thumb drive. So, you know, there, there's this, this whole world that used to be kind of, of normal that seems very strange to us now. So even though letting a strange Christian crash on your sofa sounds a little odd to us today, it's not odd in a lot of places in the world. And it definitely was not odd in the very first church. It, it was a, a normal thing. If we look back up at the beginning of chapter 2, we find that it wasn't fan fest, but there was a huge, gigantic festival. Thousands of people were in town. And during the time that all these thousands of people were in town, Peter stood up and preached. And he preached the gospel. And thousands of people got saved. And they weren't in a hurry to leave. See, Peter and them didn't have Gideon New Testaments they could just hand out to everybody. New Testament hadn't been written yet. So they couldn't just say, here, take this and go home and read it and obey. That wasn't an option. Here were these new Christians, these new believers, and they were around people like Peter who actually had been with Jesus, who had seen Jesus who had talked with Jesus, who heard Jesus teach things, and they said, we want this. We need more. They wanted to know more about following Jesus. And so they were going to hang around for a little bit. And if they were going to hang around for a little bit, they needed a little more than a hotel room. They were going to need some food. They were going to need some shelter. Maybe not for 20 years, maybe 20 days or 20 weeks or, or 20 months, but they were going to have some need. And so in the middle of, of that context, in the middle of this, this festival kind of context, with no command and no rule from Peter or anybody else in the church, these folks voluntarily, most of them, opened up their homes to people who were in need. 
and then some of them sold stuff. If they could and they had stuff, they, they sold their baseball card collection. They sold their Star Wars lunchbox collection. You know? They sold a goat or they sold a camel. They might have even sold some land. And they took what they got from that and they used it to help the people who were in need around them as they called themselves this first church. It was a temporary, voluntary act of mercy and compassion and kindness. And guess what? It came naturally. No one had to put it in the bulletin. There wasn't an announcement slide about it. The preacher didn't even have to preach a sermon on it. They just naturally said, hey, there's a need. What can I do? And you know why they were like that? It's because they believed in Jesus. Because they had Jesus together. And they had Jesus in common. It was all about Jesus. So they voluntarily met temporary needs. And here's the interesting twist on this. Temporary needs in the church never went away. And guess what? Temporary needs in the church still have not gone away. Just come spend a day with me. And you'll find out a lot about the urgent temporary needs that exist every day. That's one of the reasons that we are prayerfully encouraging our Next Steps ministry. You see, what most churches try to do, and at times what we're trying to do, is keep up with 300 people all at the same time, like each one of us. You know? we're, we're trying to keep up with the needs of 300 people all at once, everybody trying to find out what 300 people need at the same time. And that's hard. It's really hard. And what we, we want to see is we want to see you know, 15 or 20 people learning to keep up with each other's needs. Because you know, 15 or 20 people can keep up with needs, right? I told Pam this morning, I said, I think that's one of the reasons we don't see a lot of families with 12 kids anymore. You know? It's just hard to keep up with a lot of people. Hey, I've got six people in my house. I have no clue what's happening in my life for the rest of the day. I have no idea. If there is a need in a Sunday school class or a small group, those 15 to 20 people, you know what happens? They can meet that need quicker. They can meet that need faster. They can meet that need with more love and more attention than if 15 or 20 Sunday school classes or 15 or 20 small groups all call the church office at the same time with all of the needs. You see, the math is unbelievably easy. Jesus didn't have 300 disciples. He had 12. He had 12. And we're going to keep saying this statement. Second time you've heard it today, we're going to keep communicating. The church gets stronger when the church gets smaller. Lots of, lots of little families in the big church family. Lots of little churches in the big church. Generally speaking, when we look at church today, there's three kind of models that are out there. There's Sunday school, there's small groups, and there's community groups. Sunday school is based on education. Historically, always has been. A small group is kind of focused on fellowship, and a community group is is usually focused on evangelism. So here's the cool thing about the first church. They did all three of those things. They did education, they did fellowship, they did evangelism, and they just called it the church. (laughs) There wasn't another name for it. It was just who they were. It defined how they lived. I will continue to share with you that I love 
watching God work in every corner of our church right now. In every corner. In every corner, God is working in some ways just like he did in the first church to naturally and supernaturally bring us together and help us to to love learning God's word together. To help us love each other and love loving other Christians together. To help us love the loss together. This is a picture of the first church. There were lots of people, but there was this small connection together. And they got strong as these small groups of people looked out for the needs of one another. In my notes for my wedding ceremony, one of the things that I say is that in the whole concept of marriage, the meeting of needs is primary. And when the meeting of needs stops, then there's going to be a huge, gigantic problem. And so what we want to do is to, to be a place that, that's meeting needs. We can't meet 300 people's needs at one time, but we can have the kind of relationships with one another that we can immediately help one another as we have need. The church gets smaller, she gets stronger. And that also means when she gets smaller, she gets perfect, right? No. Unfortunately, there's always some version of a Judas. There's always conflict. There's always going to be sin. There is no perfect church. None. This one will never be. But even though there's always a version of Judas, look at what the other 11 did. They changed the world. See, we pursue relationship together under the umbrella of the gospel because there is an incredible opportunity we have to spread our faith. And when we spread our faith, we are so encouraged in our own faith. So how do we multiply the work of the gospel from Holland Avenue? How do we do that? How do we have all things in common? And even selling and sharing as the Lord leads. I think there's two principles that kind of cover the whole idea of what it means to be in common and to be gospel multipliers. And those two things are this. We need to be ready and we need to be responsible. We need to be ready to be givers and we need to be responsible. Now, responsible involves personal responsibility, you know, what what individually we're each supposed to do, but it also involves responsible decision-making, wise decisions. Now, let me just say that every single one of us leans to one of these things, okay? You are either somebody right now, man, you're just eager to give. You can't wait to give. You can't wait to help. Or you might be eager to be responsible. You might be eager to wait and and figure out, you know, what we need to do. And I want you to know, both of those are biblical, and both of those are needed, and both of those can be sin. See, we can be too eager to be ready and to give, and we can be too eager to be responsible. So we have to find a balance between the two. So what's the balance? Well, if you start pushing for the church to donate money to the foundation to save t-shirts with owls on steeples on the front of them. Now notice I didn't say to save owls on steeples, but to save t-shirts that have pictures of owls on steeples on the front of them. If that's your passionate mission in life, That's very noble, but it's a pretty sinful attitude about how to use God's money in God's church. Likewise, 
if your thought on how the church should do giving involves this sentence in some form before anything we do, and it's a question that goes like this, well, what are we going to get out of it? Well, that's noble, but that's a sinful attitude when it comes to using God's money in God's church. So we don't go to extremes. We always say, God, help us meet in the middle. Help us be ready, and then help us to be responsible. So what does that look like? This is what Paul said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to share. Look, most of us are ready to be responsible, but we need to be ready to share. We need to be ready to give. We need to be ready to do good. We need to be ready to be generous. And sometimes that takes a little bit of work. We need to be ready, though. And sometimes being ready means we say yes, and we give, and we sell the lunchbox collection, and we, and we give the money away. Sometimes that's what it means. And sometimes being ready means we say no. Paul also wrote this to the church at Thessalonica. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. <laughs> well, Paul, tell us how you really feel. Now, Paul was writing primarily to leaders in the church and, and servants and, and po- people who are going to be leading in some capacity of the church. He's saying, look, man, don't, don't be a lazy loser. You, know, you, you can't be a leader in the church if you're going to be lazy. You, know? you can't lead in the church if you're going to be lazy. So that's the context. But, but it's still a general principle that we see throughout the Bible, right? If you have the ability to meet basic needs, then you need to meet basic needs. We had somebody come by the church once and they were looking for help with a hotel and, and help with some food. And we were able to provide them some food that day. But it was really interesting because there was a lot of people in and out of the office that day. And, and one of the people that was in the office told me, they said, you know, that person that you were trying to help, um, they had a, a pretty fresh nail job. Yeah, they, they had been to the manicurist pretty recently. And it probably was more than a $50 nail job that they had on their fingers. Now, I know the word man is in there, but I don't go to the manicurist, and so I don't know a whole lot about what fingernailing costs. But I do know that scene gave me a little bit of perspective, right? We need to be ready to give, but then we also need to be wise in, in how we give. We need to use discernment and how we invest and how we love people. Now, with that picture in mind, though, I also remind us of this. If you're able to provide for your basic needs, that's good. But if you're able to provide for your basic needs, let me encourage you to be very careful about using this phrase. But everything I own, I earned. Here's why you need to be careful about that. According to the Bible, the only thing that any of us have ever earned is a paycheck for our sin. And that's death. You see, the reality is is that when it comes to your life and what you have, it is not a reflection of you. It is a reflection of God. So you didn't create yourself in the womb. You didn't create your mind and your body and your hands and your strength, your decision-making, your wisdom, your abilities. Whatever it is you're able to do, you can't do it without God. It's like the old joke, you know, you've heard of the guy saying, hey, challenge God to something and and he goes, all right, well, I'm going to start. I'm going to pick up some sand. And God says, what? Now you've got to start with your own resources. You didn't start with any resources. And I didn't start with any resources. 
And so what we have is this amazing reflection of God's grace in our lives. And that's important when it comes to being ready and being responsible. Because if your view of life is to run everything just like it runs at your company, you might miss the gospel. And if your view is to run everything in your life like you run it in your house, you might miss the gospel. And here's why. We tend to think that all the things in our life are supposed to be compartmentalized, but they're not. See, the gospel is supposed to function in how the church works. The gospel is supposed to function in how your job works. The gospel is supposed to function in how your home works. And even if you don't have leadership over some of those places, you still need to be a gospel thinker and a gospel prayer and a gospel investor. It still is all about Jesus. And all of it is because of the grace and mercy of God. So if you're able to meet your basic needs, then keep doing it. Do it to the best of your ability. For as long as you can work, in whatever way you can work, then keep working for the glory of God and honor Him by serving others. His grace is abundant. We need to be ready to give. We need to be ready to work. We need to be ready to do good. And we need to be ready to make good decisions. I was talking to someone this week out in the hallway and they were telling me about uh, getting a new car. And as they told me about getting a new car, I asked them, well, you know, what'd you do with the old one? And they said, well, we, we kept it. I said, we just didn't know somebody might, might need one, so we're just going to hang on to it and see if anyone has a need. Didn't trade it in. Didn't go sell it somewhere. It's still in, in working condition. Needs a few things, but, but it still runs. It's still reliable transportation. And they're hanging on to it for the sake of the gospel. That's first church stuff. That's I'm not only going to look out for my own interests. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be responsible, but I, I'm going to be ready to be available for the work of Jesus in the lives of others. This is what Jesus said. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I think I've shared this story with you before, but my friend Vernon, when he was uh, living years ago, told me, he said, you know, he goes, every year at Christmas, Janet and the kids go to Greenville, North Carolina to the really nice men's store and they buy me a nice pair of slacks every year. He goes, so I get one really nice pair of slacks from the men's store over there. And he goes, and you know what happens before the next year at Christmas time, before I get my new slacks? Of everything that's in my closet, those moths go for my nicest pair of pants. <laughs> He's right. You see, what's in your closet can get eaten up by moths. And what's sitting in your driveway can rust and fall apart. And what's sitting in your bank account can be stolen. But nobody can touch salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, the first church, what we see in them is that their whole world had changed. And all of a sudden, the things that they thought were their most prized possessions were no longer their most prized possessions. Their prize meter changed. 
And they began to see something completely different. They began to see that when they looked at the treasures of their life, their most valuable treasure, their most valuable possession was Jesus. And you know what happened because of that? The gospel multiplied. More people found that treasure. And it multiplied all the way to this room. May God give us gold medals in that kind of multiplication. May we be people that treasure Jesus more than anything.